Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Dolma Altan. Uh, Dolma is a friend of mine and uh, she has a lot of valuable and wise things to say about the connection between stress and creativity and a lot of other different stuff and I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please find us on Spotify, on Stitcher, or on any of the other podcasting platforms and go ahead and subscribe so that you can get more content like this. Um, And if you really, really enjoyed the episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could go ahead and leave a review. And I'm on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. My DMs are open. I'd love to hear what you think about this episode or any of the other episodes I'm putting out there. I've got a great lineup of a lot more episodes uh, that I'm that I'm about to publish. So really happy to provide this content for, for you and hope you're finding benefit from it. And if you are or if you just want to reach out and let me know how I can improve or let me know how the content has already affected your life, please go ahead and send me a message on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. My DMs are open. Have a great day and enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Dolma Alton. Uh, She's the CEO and founder of Make Lane. Uh, Really excited to have you on and talk about stuff. You're in my questions group and I really uh, appreciate your answers. Um, And uh, how's your day going? Um, I'm happy to be here. My day is um, hectic, but in a way that I like. Very cool. Yeah. And what is the balance between hustle and uh, rest? Uh, that's such a good question, and I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, I, my hypothesis right now is that uh, the best companies get built when you can find the balance between hard work and alignment, and alignment in my mind involves resting when you need to rest. Um, And so I think there's some sort of optimal balance for everyone and it probably looks different for different people. Have you found an answer for yourself that works across time? What do you mean works across time? So that works for you now and that has worked for you in the past? No, because I think I go through different seasons of my life. Sometimes I need more um, introspection and I feel more literary or artsy and sometimes I feel more like um, going outward and making things and starting businesses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it seems like not you know there's seasons to life as well and then there's like seasons within the moment as well like like you know the constantly rising nature of reality is is uh pretty out there Uh, (laughs) and uh and hard to put a finger on uh and then when you you know that that question of of hustle and rest is a very uh very deep one because we want to create something and then reality constantly throws us new obstacles to deal Mm -hmm. with and uh, it's just like a constant balance and you can never do all the stuff you want to do and yeah what do you think about that i mean i think that you're absolutely right it is a really important question and i personally find it really fascinating to follow the stories of sort of these entrepreneurs we kind of glorify or Mm -hmm. idolize and Mm -hmm. and often those stories come with um you know tales of just extreme hard work and dedication. Um, But I feel like we're now seeing this um, backlash to that where people are burning out and now it's more about self-care. And so what is the right balance? Can you build a billion dollar company if you're never pausing, if you're never resting, if you're not taking time for self-care? Is that a necessary sacrifice or is there a way to actually do it in a way where you're not sacrificing health and relationships? Mm. Uh, Previous guests, I've had Keith Raboy would say uh, no. 
it's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, plus billion, that's a key question you asked there, or a key statement you made, which is the plus billion dollar context. Uh, because if it's above a billion dollar company co- context, either you're really, really lucky or you're really, really hardworking. Well, actually, probably both. Ideally, both. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but if, you know, like a $10 million, $30 million, $60 million company, mm-hmm. uh, then I believe that that is, that is unquestionably that if you set it up right, you can do it without any sort of any um, uh, being totally mentally balanced and everything mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but it is an open question whether you can do it for a, a plus billion dollar company. I've now, I think I've only interviewed him in that, at that level. I don't think I've, there's a, there's a two or three people probably I've, I've interviewed who, who are at that level. And for those people, it's, it's, it's essentially like, uh, they get off on stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, <laughs> that's, so that's what I was just thinking yeah. is I think that people who, um, generally are that driven and ambitious, they don't burn out as easily, uh, because they get energized through all that work. And I think, therefore, there's a distinction between like working because you want to work versus like pushing yourself and forcing yourself uh, beyond your limits. And mm-hmm. I think that's when you burn out. Mm-hmm. Have you experienced burnout? No. Because mm-hmm. I'm very mindful about this. Mm-hmm. But now I feel like with the company I'm starting now, um, I want to grow it to a very large company with a lot of impact. And so I, this question is top of mind for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've experienced burnout and it's, uh, it's gnarly. Uh, and that, that's the one thing that Keith mentioned on, on that show was that for, for burnout, burnout when, he, I, when I asked him about burnout, he said that basically that happens when your inputs don't match your outputs. Uh, so basically when you're putting a whole bunch of work in and there's no outputs, outputs happening. Um, and so that, and that's the crazy thing about wild success, and, and particularly here in Silicon Valley. And I'd be curious because you live in LA, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be curious w- what the kind of status of that is there. Here, it's like wild success happens to people. Before that wild success happens, uh, you're basically invisible unless you have unless you have a lot of personal relationships and stuff like that. Uh, then once you have the wild success, all of those great problems happen and stuff like that. But then it becomes then it becomes a different thing, a different beast entirely, which is like. Um, you know, like how can being in this wildly successful position where everybody's telling me lies because they want to get closer to me and all this different stuff, how can I remain uh, uh, close to the truth mm. for some people? And some people like in that, like Adam Newman, you know, like we work, like, <laughs> like, yeah. like how can I completely manipulate the social field in order to uh, th- just have people throwing money at me? Uh, uh, the social proof thing. What do you think about that? The social proof versus the... Because have you been raising money? Or are you raising money? Or? I'm starting to. Starting to, yeah. So have you started to come into this kind of... I'll, I'll just give you my experience. So the social proof and uh, so building a company. You're building a company. There's things to do requiring building a company that are based on um, a search for truth and trying to understand what it is that's going on and w- what it is that the customers want and all this. And then there's this other aspect, which is fundraising, which has nothing to do with those things mm-hmm. except for only you know by, by, as a byproduct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, how do you manage these two things that are some people find opposites, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, how do you, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. You know, I, that's actually something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, because it does sometimes seem like there's such distinct skill sets. You can be a great bullshit artist and also not necessarily a good leader or a good founder. Um, but I like to think, and this is just the idealist in me that, um, that 
it's possible to be really sincere and really authentic and so um, dedicated that it actually is what fuels your effectiveness as a founder and can um, bring along the right investors to fund, to to invest in you. Mm. But we'll see. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is this is the this is the hardest part about it for me is is starting is starting something and then and then and um, reality will throw throw things at us that that we're we're unprepared for. Uh, well, in that, but then I just I was just interviewing interviewing someone else recently before this one, uh, and we talked about. Um, you just don't know. It's like reality is nonlinear, and 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 um, and then there are market cycles and and other things like that. So, what does your company do? So, um, I want to make a point to that. Sure. First. Okay, go for it. Yeah. I <clears throat> I think a really good sign is at least in the early stages. I haven't burnt out yet, okay. so bear in mind. But um, when I get these curveballs or when things suck, uh, I still enjoy it. Mm. And I think that's a good sign. And I think the thing that you're willing to... Can I swear? Can I sure. not swear? Yeah, yeah, go for it. The thing that uh-huh. you're willing to eat a shit sandwich for, mm. I think that is a really good sign. That like, It's almost like... I imagine it's like having a baby, right? Like you would never want to change anyone else's diaper, but you have a baby and doing everything for that baby is going to be fulfilling and meaningful. Um, so I think it's also about like being being attuned enough to yourself that you choose to work on the thing that you're willing to eat shit for, basically. <laughs> meaning. Um, uh, essentially meaning. Yeah, you have, you have, you have meaning yeah, in your life as yeah, opposed to... yeah. Uh, yeah and, so what do you think about this? We can go back to the, the, the question later, but what do you think about this uh, kind of, it seems like for our generation is, is that uh, meaning is kind of like, for a lot of people, it doesn't really happen anymore. There is no meaning to life. And this is partly a consequence of just like our philosophical uh, craziness that's happened in the last 30 years as technology started to put all these inputs. What do you think about that? It feels like for us, it's more about fun or mm. kind of pleasure, hedonism, mm. um, stuff like that. What do you think about the balance between meaning and hedonism or comfort? Or I think it just depends on where you're looking because I think we, you and I, live, I mean, I lived in San Francisco for five years. Before I moved to LA, this is a particular bubble where everybody is sort of um, almost indefinitely postponing adulthood, real adulthood, <laughs> <laughs> and, and just... Um, you have so much hedonism available to you and it's very tempting to just pursue that indefinitely um and so i think that's more true here but at the same time is that true beyond this bubble and also you could also argue the opposite because i think there's so much talk now of people wanting to find their quote-unquote purpose whatever that means like what is my purpose what is the thing that i should be doing what is my calling and regardless of whether you think that that is a thing uh, there are just so many people wondering that. And I think that is a sign that maybe both we are finding ourselves devoid of meaning in our lives, but also we hunger for it. So I think, um, I don't know, maybe it's like the vacuum left by like religion when be- we became more secular or something. I'm not sure. I would, yeah, I would definitely, definitely, yeah, it was a vacuum of organized, organized religion, I think. And then it's like, because well, and this is something that Nietzsche talked about, like God is dead, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that that was essentially like like science has killed God, and, you know, or killed this paternalistic figure of God, uh, and uh, 
and you know that was the motivating factor for a lot of different people for a long time was this 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 kind of like god and the sun and the, you know all this mm-hmm. different stuff and not, not only on christianity but other 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 things as well and then there's, and then there's this interplay of technology too it's like science and technology killed god that's what i, I imagine and here and you're creating a company that's Unless you have something to add on that part, what 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 does your company do? So it's essentially a masterclass for women entrepreneurs. So online courses taught by um, world class experts on every topic, from how to start um, a beauty brand to how to do your business bookkeeping and taxes. Um, really democratizing access to that knowledge for women. Very cool. And do you guys have any courses up now, or we're working on our pilot course right now. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. And so this is a, a near a near and dear topic to my heart, which is online education and the spread of online education, the democratization of it. Uh, I have some interviews I haven't published yet, uh, with particularly with my um, my cousin Eliza Erickson, who works for uh, Omidyar Network, and uh, they do a lot of investing all around the world. And there's a company in Brazil that's doing a similar thing, but for um, uh, small shops, basically. So, because mm. you know, you go other places in the world, and there's just tons of ten, like small little shops that are that are that are there, and that, uh, and so they're providing access to how to go from just a subsistence business to how do you grow this thing, uh, which is really cool, and that's like online, online, online yeah, that's yeah awesome. through mobile phones. That is so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think online education will do to our sense of meaning or our sense of purpose? For, well, what I hope is that there will be such quality um, online education available in 10 or more years that those of us who have an idea or some sort of inspiration will be able to bring it to life easier and faster. Um, but then it still sort of leaves it up to you to find the thing that is inspiring to you, mm. I suppose. That's the way I think about it now. How did you find yours? I... Um, a lot of flailing and wandering and missteps um, and shame and um, and eventually uh, trying a lot of things and also just becoming a braver person because what I realized is um, for maybe four or five years, just most of the time that I spent in the workforce after college, I felt like I couldn't find my thing and I just felt like it was out there. But then when it finally came to me and when I finally started working on it, I realized I it wasn't that I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was just scared of doing it. I was just scared of what it was and I wasn't brave enough. And I think a lot of the time when people say, I don't know what I want to do, sometimes, well, sometimes it can mean I have a thing I want to do, but I'm too scared because it's impractical and my parents are going to scold me or whatever it is. Uh, this comes up to a really good question that I want to add to the group, which is uh, what is the a good motivating question for yourself is what is the thing that scares me most? Um, but it's not only that, because like, what is the thing that scares me most? What would that, for me, that when I, when I ask myself that question now is like death, that would be the big one for me. Um, but I don't want to do that now. <laughs> uh, so how, it seems like a motivating cor- motivating question to mm-hmm. figure out like, but you can't, it's good. There's got to be another added, added 
nuance to that question. Um, but that's a good question. Uh, I think that's a great question. Uh-huh. I think I, I was actually thinking about the, that the other day. I think there's so much value in confronting our fears because it just frees us to live a fuller life. Um, and I think the question that I arrived at for myself is what um, am I afraid of? What am I most afraid of that will not cause me bodily harm, <laughs> <laughs> basically? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or psychological harm. Like, whoa, yeah. well, that's, this goes into the other question. It's that like, is yeah, like, because the psychological part is like, uh, can the psyche be hurt? Hmm. What do you think? Um, yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Or I, I think, I don't know about can the psyche be hurt, but it can um, experience things that sort of instill in us um, maladaptive patterns mm-hmm. that we have to mm-hmm. later reprogram. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and we do know that the psyche has a relationship to the body so that the, 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 if we are stressed, the body will react depending on our view of stress. This is the weirdest thing for me. I've been reading this book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Robert Sapolsky. Have you, have you read it? No. Or not? Uh, so basically just the science of stress and like, you know, like what is happening? What, what is the latest evidence about what is happening when we experience stress? And then that part, and then also uh, Jordan Peterson has some lecture, lectures on uh, the map of, maps of meaning, um, mm-hmm. and for for his class in, in Toronto, uh, and so both definitely Sapolsky is more like hard evidence uh, science based on what's going on, and, and Jordan Peterson has a little bit of mysticism or something, some, but he's still very much a neurobiologist, um, and so a lot of things happen when we're under stress. Definitely our body reacts to stress, but it all depends on how we view stress. So the big thing for me is basically reformulating how I view stress and how I uh, approach stress Mm -hmm. and what I find stressful. How about you? I I think there's definitely something to that. Um, Sometimes... So I, I'm an introvert and I don't mm. like networking. I really don't like bi- big noisy events where I have to schmooze and sort of like do the rounds. Um, I just end up at the bar like counting <laughs> shots instead. Um, but but recently I went to an event and it was um, kind of like a networky fundraising thing. And I made this sort of um, decision before I went in that I would really enjoy and lean into the sort of terror of it for me because... I want to build that muscle of just really embracing discomfort. So I think that um, was helpful, you know? Mm. It was just like, all right, bring it on. <laughs> and that, that actually, that is, did you read about that or did you just come up with that on your own, that idea? Um, I actually did read about okay. it. There was a book called um, For, I don't remember the name, but um, there's some kind of like celebrity therapist in mm. LA who um, with a, a colleague of his wrote a book about four practices that help you just become a more skilled um, human being. And one of them was to embrace pain. Like he even has this really cheesy practice where if anything brings you pain or brings you fear, you like do this almost like Amy Cuddy-esque sort of physical posture and you like uh-huh. say out loud, like bring it on or like, Interesting. I, yeah. I love fear or I don't remember what it was, but it was something like that. And that was um, actually an inspiration for me. It, yeah. It's helped. So what I was going to say is that the, there's a book called Uptide of Stress by Kelly McGonnell. And that was when I interviewed Keith, uh, that was the main book that he um, suggested I read about it. And I don't want to forget the point I was going to make. Uh, <laughs> uh, upside of stress. Oh, yeah. So the challenge response. So so you basically uh, changed the, the relationship you had to stress. And, and you said, I'm going to look at this as a challenge as opposed to a threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, according to Kelly McGonnell, that actually engages a nervous system response that will 
uh, it gets you riled up as mm-hmm. opposed to as opposed to to, to cowering. Yeah, because yeah. mm-hmm. if if you consider the physical sensations of fear and stress or anxiety, it can be pretty similar to excitement, like a lot of excitement. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. butterflies before a, a, an exciting first date or something. So it's about a reframe. Absolutely, and 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 that goes to another point about a. Uh, spiritual uh, Kashmir Shaivite tradition um, which talks about this thing called Spanda and Spanda hopefully I don't butcher this I might not even know if this is actually it but Spanda is this uh, sacred pulsation over under uh, under which all of life essentially uh, tunes to which is this expansion and contraction uh, and that happens throughout time over and over again you know in the space of a cell a cell grows and, and then dies and decentralizes and then gets and it happens at the universe scale and so that spanda usually is felt in the heart, um, uh, in the heart area, uh, and it's, it's similar to that kind of excitement, anxiety thing, mm-hmm. um, because a lot of people who haven't come to a really uh, integrated that, that, ex- that expression of stress or that, under that experience of stress will experience the excitement as anxiety, and, but it's all just a reflame, so it's just a way of essentially um, observing what's in front of us and what we're experiencing and then noticing that we're observing it and then changing the the attitude under which we're observing Mm -hmm. because if we can always continuously observe any phenomena that's arising we can observe that and then we can observe the observer as well uh and that observing part is malleable it's like it's it's always um free uh which a lot of the traditions come to that's like that's the that's mm-hmm. the point you know is find that freedom basically have you read um the power of now or yep. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that book i read that when i was 17 and it really changed my life um and I, I i would say that the thing that has most served me from that book is just this idea of um experiencing different sensations or feelings or moments fully instead of adding all kinds of negative commentary upon them um, because it's ultimately the resistance that mm. causes suffering and and the resistance is like the second layer that you can actually remove and then you only have the initial experience and that in itself doesn't have to be bad it's not really anything mm. Mm. that's beautiful so going back to this anxiety and excitement uh, what are you most excited about right now? Um, this company. This company? Yeah, launching it, getting it off the ground, making an impact, and um, using it as a vehicle to love other people. Interesting. How big is your team now? I mean, I started working on this in April, so it's oh, okay. me and one other person that I'm going to hire full time as soon as I can. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and what about uh, what about female entrepreneurs? What? Why? Why that? Mm-hmm. Um, I just have a real soft spot for them. I have a community of over 500 women who are entrepreneurs that I've been nurturing, and just seeing their stories and seeing how. Um, cause-driven a lot of them are and how sort of inspiring and brave and relentless they are just made me want to create a resource that can help them and people like them. Um, I also think it's a good way to 
help uplift women in a society where they're just, you know, they don't have equal access to things. And are these courses uh, going to be, so they're online for sure, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. are they going to be live or recorded? They're going to be recorded. Okay. Yeah. So you, they're going to be self-paced, but that's also something we will test. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah online education is, would, uh, wh- who are your biggest inspirations in online, online education at the moment? That's a really good question. Um, I actually really love, um, so th- I love Masterclass. Um, I, there's a woman named Marie Frolio, whose course I took when I was like back in college. I don't even know why, because I didn't have a business. I was just like, this looks amazing. I'm going to invest in it because it'll be useful at some point. And now it is. Um, but that was cool because she has, I mean, I think if you don't know anything about how to start a business, especially online, it's helpful. Otherwise it's a little fundamental, but, um, but it's, it's very thoughtfully put together and the community is amazing. Mm. Um, and then I, I actually really like Khan Academy. Mm. I just love how there's something about, um, what they've done that's grown so organically and I just think they, they did it really well. And that is, I love that you brought up Khan Academy because Khan Academy is this kind of like, it's almost like it's a success, but in a lot of people's mind, it's also a failure because it's a, um, because the completion rates that everybody talks about the completion rates in, in large scale courses. And that was the initial idea for online education was essentially you put this thing online and people complete it and they get a degree and it's just basically here's the model in person, we're going to copy that, and then we're going to put it online. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think? What do you see? What's what's your secret yeah. in terms of like how that, why that wasn't right or what, what the right model is? Well, I think, I mean, I think the model depends on the content and the audience, but, um, but I think the thing about completion rate, I mean, it depends on what people are trying to do, right? If I am trying to learn about one piece of algebra, then if I am picking and choosing the videos I'm going to watch in an entire course, then that's actually a success because I'm not trying to watch the full thing. So it really depends on what people are trying to do, I think. That's really interesting because that's the way that I've found it is like now I, I don't pay for courses anymore because most most of the stuff that I'm learning, most of the stuff I'm actively learning is biology. Um, and so that's biology, all that's inf- out there, the, all the information's out there, mm-hmm. the Khan Academy's out there. For, so it's, I don't need to, pay if I were to pay somebody it would be to formulate that information in a way that's really like really like kind of gets to me or like uh, mm-hmm. makes it easier because the hardest part for me has been the vocab languages like learning a new language and so I have to in order to understand one of these articles or understand a video sometimes I have to go and figure out what is a cytokine cell what mm-hmm. is a what is a you know like um uh, microtubule or microvacuole, like all these different words that just have no meaning to me and mm-hmm. then understand them and like, um, and so I could see a course that's designed in order to help those, but that it's, but I don't find myself, I was paying for yoga, uh, online yoga courses Which and one? stuff like that, um, a bunch of them. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, Jules Mitchell. Jules Mitchell okay. is really good. She's a biomechanics yoga teacher, so she only oh. teaches yoga teachers. I've been, I've been a yoga teacher for a long time. Do you, do I you, used to teach yoga. Okay, cool. Yeah. So yeah, Jules Mitchell. Uh, what got me into the yoga online yoga courses was Harvey Deutsch. So I actually trained in person with Harvey Deutsch, who's a yoga therapist here in, um, in, uh, in San Francisco, also a physical therapist, and was one of the first people who brought a Western science understanding of yoga into, mm-hmm. the, into, the, into the practice as well. And so he did an online course, and that was with Jules Mitchell, and then I found a whole bunch of other people that way as well. Uh, Matthew Remsky was an interesting, that, that was an interesting one, because that, that was the, the modern uh, 
the, the understanding of what happened to modern postural yoga and how how it came about historically, which is interesting. Which if you if you uh, that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so those are some online courses that that we did. Um, uh, so the point was that most of it's free. So what are you? Are, is it going to be paid? Are you just going to be paid? paid? Yeah. yeah. And so. Um, what is it, what, how will people, what are the important things to do when you're charging somebody for an online course? I am wondering the same thing. We'll see, probably just um, really articulating the real value you're trying to deliver and then delivering on that value. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good, a good, good point. Um, well, okay, I have a question for yeah. you. What do you think it is about video courses that mm. is so effective? Because I think a lot about different um, media, like audio, podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, I read a lot. I love video as well. And so I'm always thinking about why certain kinds of content or experiences feel better suited to different kinds of mm. media. Mm -hmm. um, curious about your take on that. I have a lot of thoughts on that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, we got audio, we got visual. Uh, somebody, a recent guest once told me that uh, a, a presentation is basically just like you go into work, it's just an audio visual presentation. Like that, that's all it is, is, and that can be done anywhere, right? So video is just the, the, the kind of natural extension of a, of a, of a, of a presentation um, just designed for, for the internet. Audio is really interesting because for me personally, I, I, it's really funny. I never listened to podcasts and I started a podcast and I still barely ever listen to podcasts. Mm. Most of the information I do is audiovisual. So, and that was, that's even a recent one before that was just reading Basically I, I didn't, I didn't have any, any audio inputs and no, no visual in, inputs when it came to learning, when it came to distracting myself or entertainment or, or fiction, uh, then, then video was actually the primary ways. Um, uh, and so there's something about the audio which is getting to people these days. I think it has something to do with distraction. Um, most people are finding themselves totally distracted throughout most of the day, and it's because your eyes are on this thing which is like an unlimited supply of, of whatever you want. Uh, and so, and then audio is like this time, so it's like you're, 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 you can listen to it without having this visual mm -hmm. kind of thing that allows you to go into this web um, you can't do that with audio, I don't think. Uh, and and so then, audiovisual, and then there are the other senses too, which is like, um, which, oh yeah, if you if you like power now, you'll like this book. Uh, it's um, Untethered Soul. Have you ever read? Um, wait, yes, I did read the Untethered Soul, but okay. not the Surrender Experiment. Okay, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so the Untethered Soul and the Surrender Experiment's great as well. Uh, Untethered Soul, in that book, he gives this metaphor of if, uh, so we, when we go to a, a movie, that's an audiovisual presentation, and sometimes you get so wrapped up in the movie that you forget you exist, right? And, and, you, and you kind of, you just, you're so wrapped up in it. And then, uh, so what would happen if not only you were able to do, go to a movie, but you also had your sense of smell engaged? Um, and what would that do? And then, you know, it's like, and then not only your sense of smell, your audio, also your touch. What would that do? Uh, and then what's the last one? Audio, visual, taste. Taste, yes, yeah, so sense of taste as well. Then, then what would that do? 
how would you distinguish that between reality and mm-hmm. and but that gets into the question of reality itself mm-hmm. too it's like how how do you you know it's like all of our senses are the only way that we experience the rest of the world mm-hmm. and there's no way not to experience that uh so um that was a really long way to not even answer the question <laughs> <laughs> no i mean uh, that you were saying you used video primarily for entertainment before uh-huh. And you would read a lot to learn. Mm. Um, so, and you're saying you don't really listen to podcasts. It's funny because I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I think what I like about them is that there's a certain uh, yes, you can do other things while you listen to podcasts, and I love that efficiency. Um, but I also think that there's something really intimate about podcasts, like especially when you're listening to two people talking. It feels like you're in this really intimate sort of space where you're eavesdropping on like a like a very human connection. Mm. Um, and I think there's something about that that I value beyond just whatever information I'm absorbing. So And that doesn't happen in the video because the video you're basically, uh, um, you're, you don't have that possibility for the visual cortex to be engaged in a way that is imaginatory because mm. you actually got the thing right in front mm. of you basically, yeah. Which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, that brings up a point of one of the things I think about the podcasting as well is that the the, the voice is the way that we transmitted um, information and for the longest time before writing. So like writing is a recent recent invention, mm-hmm. and and voice is like much 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 deeper and much and also very interesting. So I think people are kind of. And that's why they're so effective. That's why people like podcasts so much, I mm-hmm. think. It's just like it's something deep. It's like, like you said, it's like another analogy would be like sitting around the fire and, mm-hmm. and you know, like um, you're, I guess that's why they call them fireside chats. That's really, <laughs> that's really interesting. Because that, you know, like back yeah, in the yeah, day, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And that was with radio. That was people would come around the radio at the same time at the, in the same similar way as they would come around the TV and stuff mm-hmm. like that so yeah, yeah. so we got audiovisual presentations so yeah what do you think about VR what do you think about the opportunity for VR for online education I haven't given that much thought yet to be mm. honest with you um, because so much of what I want to do is make things super convenient and accessible and frictionless and I think VR might be a component that's adding a bit more complexity than right now um, I'm focusing on mm. but could have really interesting applications I just don't know what because that kind of it kind of goes in I was uh, actually my friend is, is staying at the house you might know her uh, um, oh you should meet her as well because she lives she's moving to LA but uh, she is her name is Swan and she's a previous uh, uh, podcast guest and have you ever heard of Beat Saber uh, so Beat Saber is a VR game uh, and uh, it's like uh, you have lightsabers and you hit things with the lightsabers. And it's a really cool game, very, very popular for VR. And uh, she's now working on another game, which is um, dancing. Uh, and I just tried it yesterday and it was like, it was crazy. It was really interesting. Like it was the first embodied experience I had with VR where I'm dancing and I'm getting exercise. Uh, and I used to play computer games and that was not an embodied experience when I would play computer games. Mm-hmm. That was a, well, it was embodied, but only in my hands and my, my eyes and my, my uh, frontal cortex. And so, uh, so it was really interesting to have that experience. Mm-hmm. But, and so it's making me think about VR, so yeah. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. yeah, interesting. I mean, I think we're 
I like to think we're in the nation stages of what online education could really be and how it could look like. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we'll see. Cool. Why, why are you here in San Francisco? Um, fundraising uh-huh. and seeing my friends. Mainly those two. Yeah. Yeah. What are you most, what have you, what is the most interesting lesson you've learned from fundraising so far? Um, I'm really still in the early stages of it, but I think what I've realized is um, that, so I, I thought of fundraising as this sort of separate thing where the rules of like human relationships are different, but I think really ultimately it's the same as building friendships, building dating Mm -hmm. um and i think what i've learned about dating over the years is i what what i've seen is that the best results come from being very clear about who i'm looking for what i want um my non-negotiables what i'm willing to be flexible on and knowing what i bring to the table and really owning that um and being very direct and being um selective about who is like a hell yes for me and also not necessarily wasting time on people um, who seem like they don't see me as a hell yes. Mm. And I think that is something that um, to some extent could potentially make a process like fundraising less draining or sort of discouraging because I think it's important to go into any situation where you're building relationships, building rapport, building trust. Um, trying to convince people with um, a strong sense of self and I I just I think I was not necessarily seeing it that way before but now I realize there are a lot of principles that are transferable mm-hmm. and so in what ways do you think uh, fundraising is not like dating though um, I think hold on let me think about that I, well, I think just because it's a business transaction, it is very different. Um, but in the early stages, if you're raising like a pre-seed round, like I am, then it it's still so heavily based on um, trust and relationships, mm. I think. And emotion. Yeah, and um, emotion. Yeah. And I actually think, um, this is another thing that I, it's just a hypothesis, but I actually think that in dating, sometimes people can have a certain idea of what they're looking for, but when they just like someone, they just like someone, and they sort of um, rationalize to themselves why after the fact. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes um, with with things in the world of work and business, that can be more true than we think. People just make sort of gut decisions and then rationalize to themselves, well, it's because of this, this, and that. And I think that that is... Um, do you know, is it possible, I don't mean you specifically or anybody, uh, but is it possible to know when you're rationalizing? <laughs> is it possible to know whether you're rationalizing something, a post facto rationalization, or whether it's reality? That's the biggest question, I think, that I've not been able to figure out yet. I think it's like about, I, I try to be, um, I, I try to keep myself honest about things like that, and one thing that helps is having a defined set of things I'm looking for, whether mm. 
it's about what mm. I'm working on or whether it's about the kind of friends I want to have or events I want to go to. And then if I'm leaning into something that clearly violates those like criteria, then I know that there's maybe an additional like criterion that I haven't added to my list or or I'm just acting out of emotion and not being honest with myself. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it is an element of the future in that. So it's coming to a strong understanding of what you want and what your values are before going into the engagements basically that's the that's the that's a way um, and I do agree with that I think there's a nuance to that though as well because like also I think it's like a, a unintended consequence of that could essentially be defining exactly what we, what we want mm-hmm. and missing everything else so that uh, we end up finding exactly what we want and not knowing, this is a big question I've been having, uh, again, it's like, when we set up a goal, when we set a goal, when we become goal-directed, does that limit our ability to experience non-linear, mm-hmm. un-understandable, on things that we, does conceiving of the goal then define our action only towards that goal, or are we missing out on a larger perspective? I think... I think there's something to that, um, but I like to think it's possible to be goal-oriented, but also appreciate and be open to other things. Mm. Um, and right now, I think, speaking of seasons, which we were talking about earlier, I think I'm in a season of my life where I really want to set goals, not just for the sake of achieving them, but because I I think um, I want to see who I become on the way to getting to that goal. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you want to see what you're made of? Yeah, mm. basically. Mm. Why do you want to see that? I I don't know. It just seems like a good way to make the most out of life. I think I like I like the idea of approaching life as if it's a game mm. or as if with this sense of play. And I think um with any game, you want to see what you can do. You want to see how high you can jump. You want to see um, what you can achieve. And so I think just not being, not taking it so seriously, but still um, exploring the frontiers of that experience can be fun. Mm. Have you ever read the game or read the book <laughs> uh, uh, Finite Games, Infinite Games? I haven't read it yet, but uh, no, have you heard of it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I get that. I haven't read it, so I can't really speak to it, but I can say that... Uh, I can get the idea that the finite games, and there's finite games and then there's infinite games. Uh, and finite games are linear, everybody knows the rules, everybody can communicate about them, and then the infinite games are like the set of all possible games. So basically like the, you know, that one game is nested within a hierarchy of games basically. And so the, the uh, infinite games would be how do you, the game of life essentially, how do you, how do you play that? Because yeah. um, it's all up in the air and nobody knows what I do like that mindset. Um, I want to add one more thing to the idea of like goals. I, I think like one thing I've been thinking about is uh, I realized that whenever I would set out to do something, I would first ask people what is possible. And then I think people, either based on their experiences or their pessimism or the constraints that they put on themselves, would sort of... Um, offer insights that seemed kind of 
like limiting. Mm. Like they'd be like, well, you have to do all these things before that can ever be possible. Mm. And I initially, I think I was taking that for granted and really taking that as a given. But then I started to do an exercise where, um, and I've been trying to do this in different areas of my life, just asking myself, what would my ideal look like? Not just what is available to me right now and what do I have to settle for, but like if I just could fantasize about my ideal situation, what would that look like? And I think even the act of doing that can open up our minds to having that potentially be a possibility and also just kind of free us from limited thinking. And I think that can be a valuable exercise. It sounds like you ask yourself a lot of questions. Um, and I find that a lot of people don't ask themselves these questions. I didn't start doing it until about two or three years ago. Is it is this a practice that you were taught or did you just start doing it? I think I am generally um, extremely curious and I ask a lot of questions of life in general. And I think I've always been somebody who's looking for better ways to be a human and just how to become a more skillful human, um, both in the sense of being, um, making other people's lives a little bit better and also making my life better. Mm. Um, and I think that, I, I don't know, I think it's just something innate. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> curiosity. Uh, and curiosity is such an interesting emotion or mechanism or uh, circuit I think that's the way to say it uh, because it it it's about the seeking thing and it's really old it's like a really really old uh, old circuit in, in not only our brains but the brains of all like most of life uh, to go out and seek uh, somebody in the same group that we're, we're in uh, he posted this thing about the eyes and how the eyes evolved and the first thing that evolved eyes was a light light worm I'm sorry uh, flatworm and the flatworm had two eyes on it and these eyes were not eyes like ours eyes but they were like essentially just balls of cells that could uh, react to light uh, and that was the first you know eye that ever existed wow. and now we have eyes like ours and eagles have eyes like theirs and, yeah. uh, and eagles can see a, um, mice from a mile away which we can't do um, I don't know seeking. why. Seeking, yeah. So seeking, and then uh, so that's that's the visual seeking, and then there's a whole bunch of other seeking. Just mm-hmm. guess a really interesting question about um, intellectual seeking, what that means. Like why why did we develop? I mean, you know, this is a, a difficult question. Why why did we develop this intellectual ability to seek? What is, the, what is the intellectual ability to seek? What is, how is that different from, I mean, is it related to just food or, or right. you know, like, or is it, yeah, well, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> I mean, I, I think of humans as being like animals, but with like a little bit of magic on top of that. That <laughs> makes us like wonder about things like spirituality and whatnot um, and meaning and purpose and all these crazy things. And and I, I often wonder that too. Are we curious? It, is the curiosity coming from our animal selves or our sort of like beyond animal selves if we accept that dichotomy? Mm, spirit. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, that's a, a getting into, you know, exactly what I talked about, but pretty deep, deep stuff. So. Because cats are pretty curious. They are. Right? Yeah. So it's like, it's so interesting to observe them because it, it 
on the one hand, you could argue that um, it's helpful for them to look for things because they might find food or they might, you know, just get a better sense of their environment and that might make them more alert. But on the other hand, they get into some shenanigans. Mm. I mean, they're, they're very risk-taking <laughs> creatures. And so it, it almost seems suboptimal for survival. Yeah. This is a question I constantly face is like, curiosity kills the cat. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's funny. Uh, and uh, yeah, where because a lot of people, why do you think a lot of people don't like to ask questions? I think um, I don't know why they don't like to ask questions, but I think that most people are very focused on um, sort of their initial sort of impulse goals, like like being successful or like mm. being attractive or being just more ego-driven things or survival-driven things. And I, I, I think those things can be so seductive and consuming that it can leave little bandwidth to either question these particular um, things and, or just even like go beyond it to ask broader questions. A previous guest has said that when you ask questions, the question defines the answer. So if you ask the right questions, you'll get what you want basically. Um, still trying to figure out whether that's true or not. Because uh, yeah, it, so, it sounds cool. It sounds cool, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, which is probably why, why, he's, uh, why he's, he's, uh, he's famous. But uh, so question defines what we want. I'm sorry, what we want defines the questions. But I feel so under that framework, somebody could then. Because a lot of like uh, what I'm asking is basically so people who are motivated by ego or survival are are have if they ask the right questions, so like ego, a big one, I think a lot of people deal with it, is that is um, status, everyone, mm -hmm. everyone does deal with status, so. Uh, especially here. Especially yeah. here, right, yeah, and yeah. And so, okay, so we, got, so we got status, and people in that frame of mind, if, do they make it explicit? Because actually, yeah, this is something interesting to think about, is like, most of them don't even recognize that they are seeking status, right? So it's that, like, yeah. yeah, so it's like they're not even asking the right questions about how to achieve status. And that gets into the unconscious, because I see some people who, who probably wouldn't be aware of that if, if you asked them about it, but they know how to do it and they're getting it and mm -hmm. probably has to go, go, do with childhood stuff and like, mm -hmm. like not having a certain type of attention um, in childhood and then kind of uh, unconsciously seeking that. And it gets into just success. Do you, what do you think about that question that this guy said? Is that like, do you think if people ask the right questions, they would get what they want? Um, I don't know if, I don't know about the link between those two things, but I think if you ask the right questions, it can unhook you from um, false ideas about what might bring you happiness, mm. certainly. Like if I think, having a billion dollar company is finally gonna make my parents love me <laughs> but I never question it then when I get that it's probably not gonna happen mm. or I'll face mm. some sort of disappointment 
I don't know, but this this makes me think about something I wonder all the time lately, which is how like when you when we look at all these people with insane amounts of drive, um, what are they being driven by? Of course, it's different from person to person, but how many people who are insanely driven and ambitious are doing it because they just haven't dealt with enough of mm. their childhood stuff? You know what I mean? I mm. wonder that all the time. Mm. I've, I've talked about uh, on another episode with um, Vinay Hiramath uh, from Loom Video, and uh, that, w- that was really interesting. He said that you do have to have a, a chip on your shoulder uh, in order to, for, for wild success. That happen. was true yeah. for me for mm. the first 22 years of my life. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then that's what we got into is that you have the chip on your shoulder uh, and then Loom themselves, their hiring process is that they look for people with chips on their shoulder, but they (laughs) they look for people who have integrated it. Uh So essentially, like, you have the chip on your shoulder, but you have the self-awareness to recognize that you have a chip on your shoulder as opposed to somebody who's running around not having that information. That's so interesting because I almost felt like when I realized I I had been driven by that for so long because I'm an immigrant, because of all the ways that I grew up. Um, I, I, it was such a, it wasn't like a sudden shock, but eventually it just really um, made me unable to continue operating from that drive because I was starting to see it for what it was. Mm-hmm. And that for a while made me very unambitious It w- because then I was, I, w- I, I, I could no longer chase status or fame in the way that I felt compelled to before, but I didn't have this new thing to replace it. And eventually, I think, what I feel like I found now is just a more sort of sincere kind of inspiration. Mm. Um, But I don't know, I ask myself all the time, am I really doing this because I care about women? Or is some part of me still like, oh, this is going to be so great for my ego, you know? It's probably 5% or 10% that still, honestly. And, and... That's normal and recognize and and good to recognize and uh, good to recognize. Uh, uh, so that uh, the fact that you're asking that question is a good sign. Um, yeah. uh, it's the same thing that I came to on a conclusion. I have a fear. Part of this show is motivated by this fear of going crazy that I have. Uh, so I have a fear of going too crazy, and that's tied in with the spiritual practice because some people go, do they? I don't know. I have an assumption that people go, go crazy uh, under when when uh, progressing on the spiritual path. And so, um, so this crisis of meaning, yeah, I lost it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this has been really cool. Uh, well, how can people find out more about you and find out more about your company? Um, they can go to makeland.com. Right now we have a splash page, but we're going to launch soon. Uh, and they can learn more about me if they go to my personal website, I guess, um, dalmaalton.com. Cool. Yeah. Thank you so much. Of course. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Dolma. If you did, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any of the major podcasting platforms, and go ahead and give us a review. Uh, And also hit the subscribe button. I am on Twitter at Stuart Alsop III. My DMs are open. Uh, please send me a message. I'd love to hear what you think about this content or any of the other content that I'm putting out there. I'm releasing episodes every day, Monday through Friday, for the rest of the month of January. And um, on February, I'll probably go back to a Monday and Friday release schedule uh, as I'm going on uh, quite a few meditation retreats for the month of February. Have a great day.